So good morning. I'm one of uh, the elders at Soma Eastside, and I'd like to welcome you to our service this morning. And uh, just want to thank you for... Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> I just want to thank you for coming. That was the reminder to release the children. Um, so I'm going to work on that. Uh, let me just, if you are a child or a youth, would you stand up for this? Just for this morning. I'd like to bless you. Jesus placed a special blessing on children. He never tired of children coming to him. And he, he actually told the adults to be more like children in terms of faith. So you are the future of the church, and you're part of the church now. And during this Advent season that we just described, May you grow in the anticipation of Emmanuel in, in Jesus, God with us. So go in peace and walk to your classes. Thanks. So we have been uh, studying the book of James, um, and he's, James is kind of known as a tell-it-like-it-is biblical writer. If you follow James uh, and have kind of been following the sermon series, you know that uh, he often uses strong language. No, not that kind. Uh, but a very crisp soundbite to get his points across. And his audience are Christ followers. His writing reflects what he believes that needs to be addressed if we are all to follow him seriously and sincerely. This is a serious book. Just a few of the topics that he has raised in the first Three, three and a half chapters, trials, temptations, tests, knowing what the Bible says, favoritism, the relationship between faith and action, the control of our tongue, true wisdom and where it comes from, friendship with the world, judging others. Amazing list and a difficult list. And last week, Pete brought us through the first section of chapter 4, where we considered what it means to slander someone. And he gave us perspective on how we push God and his law aside when we sit in judgment of others. In this next part of chapter 4, James decides he's going to challenge his readers about godless planning. So let's stand together and take a look at the, these verses as I read them. This is our passage this morning, James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that disappears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word given to us by God, and all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and realize, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. Please be seated. So, James begins these verses with, come now. 
Today's equivalent might be, listen up! (laughs) Got your attention. This is a serious point he wants to make, and he doesn't want anyone to miss it. The illustration he uses here is that of a business person making plans. This is in the present tense, so this is something that was happening at the time that James was making these statements. Business travel in the first century was very common, and Jews traveled widely for business purposes. Aquila, Priscilla, Lydia are just some New Testament examples. But this period was marked by growing commercial activity. Many had left Palestine to settle in cities throughout the Mediterranean in pursuit of financial gain. And James here is specifically giving an illustration to people in business, but it has much broader implications for any believer who makes plans. So, notice the sample business plan. The start of the initiative has already been arranged. The beginning of the statement. Today or tomorrow, we're going to do this. So the timing has already started. Number one, go into this or that city. Number two, Go and spend a year there. Number three, carry on business. Number four, make money. The basic elements sound a lot like elements of a normal modern business plan, don't they? Target audience, time-bound goals, focused business, make cash. Right? Not much has changed from James speaking. My wife and I, uh, Bernice and I, lived in Frankfurt, Germany, in an international community where almost everyone we knew was there for a business reason. Most of the people had moved internationally, uprooting their own families and leaving extended families to move to a completely new country where most of them didn't speak the local language and or understand the culture. Members of our church, international church there, were top leaders in their field. They were chosen for an expat assignment by their company with the goal of what? To make money and expand. These leaders were under immense pressure to increase the bottom line. Most of them had three-year contracts. And if nothing positive happened at the end of that three-year contract, they were gone. And many of them were gone before the end of the three-year contract. They were all planners. Most of them were bold planners. But one by one, they began to realize that perhaps God had moved them for another reason that through the tough times they were experiencing, they would get to know God in an entirely new way, in a new and personal way. Some businesses grew, others failed, and failed big. Here's one example. In 1997, Walmart decided to head for Germany and bought two German retail chains, Wertkauf for 750 million euros and Interspar for a whopping 1.3 billion. But Walmart's global fame and aggressive entry into foreign markets didn't work well in Germany. In 2006, after selling its assets and losing over a billion, Walmart left Germany, never to return. I knew the man who came from the Carolinas to bring Walmart to Germany, personally. He attended the International Church in Dusseldorf. He was a leader in place during this billion-dollar failure. He is a believer, and his knowledge that God was bigger than the biggest business failure that he's ever experienced is what sustained him as he returned to the States in failure on a business side. 
Over almost 17 years that we lived in Germany, Bernice and I saw business and health issues that sidelined some of these leaders, family problems, difficult adjustments to new culture, countless other things which required plans to be modified. We had a front row seat to God changing lives through disrupted plans. James is describing the plan of a confident person who arrogantly believes they will be able to carry their plans out to completion. This is a direct contrast to the warning in Proverbs 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring forth. He points out that someone who arrogantly plans actually knows nothing of the future. Basically, you can make all these plans, but you really don't know what you're doing or what will happen. You're taking your best shot at framing how things will go. I'm sure Walmart had some amazing, complicated, and expensive plans on paper. James here is concerned about how they are planning, not the fact that they're making plans. They are planning as if they know what the future holds, or perhaps even if they have control of the future. No allowance is being made for unforeseen circumstances. Not only is their knowledge limited, but even their very lives are uncertain. James exclaims, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know when you wake up in a spring morning and there's a mist hanging over the lawn or over the, the lake somewhere? By mid-morning, it's gone. It's warmed up enough that that mist is simply vanished. It's disappeared. There's nothing left. James is trying to describe how transitory our lives are in the grand scheme of things. He's not just talking about the possible conditions of life, but whether the person would be alive at all. These people were planning as if everything they said was an accomplished fact. This reminds me of one of Jesus' parables in Luke 12. He told them a parable saying, "...the land of the rich man produced plentifully." And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Note the plan. The rich and blessed man says, I have a lot of crops. I'm running out of storage room. I need more room to store my goods, so I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones to contain all my grain and goods. So far, so good, right? Makes sense. The man needs a bigger barn. But then he makes some assumptions based on the wealth that he feels like he created himself. He calculates that he has enough to relax, eat, drink, and be merry for many years. His trust is in his riches, his ability to calculate returns and dividends, but he doesn't include God in the equation at all. Who gave him the health and ability in the first place to make any money at all? Who is in charge of whether he takes his, whether or not he takes his next breath. The phrase, your soul is required of you, 
means his life is ending tonight. God says the bigger barns, the grain, the goods, they're all going to someone else. You can't take it with you. The man is not being rich toward God in his planning. He didn't take God into account. The rich man fell into the same trap the Israelites had been warned against by Moses in Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and your gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The root problem here is pride and arrogance. For a believer to leave God out of their plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency. It's actually a declaration of independence from God. James encourages us to look at reality and he suggests an alternate way of planning which acknowledges God. He begins now to address how a believer should act. Instead, you ought to say, he continues in this hypothetical planning situation, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The first thing that we need to recognize is that our very life depends on him and him alone. Acts 17 states, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And the second thing is doing this or that that we plan is also completely dependent on God's will, not ours. In recent years, we have probably witnessed the greatest example in our lifetime regarding our life depending on him and our ability to do this or that. Let's consider the COVID pandemic, which caused global disruption. This tiny virus is 2,000 times smaller than the common dust mite, which lives in 84% of our homes. Don't worry, go home and clean. <laughs> 2,000 times smaller. COVID has killed almost 7 million people around the globe and disrupted the plans of billions and billions. In March of 2020, I, like you, had a lot of plans. Earlier in the year, I'd already been to Benin, West Africa, and then to Frankfurt, Germany. I had confidently planned out my year of travel for business. But by April 3rd, looking back in my calendar, there's a note in my calendar that says, cancel flights. That's it. April 3rd. I got back from Benin, end of March. COVID was the great equalizer. It showed us that actually no one had control. Do we really need more evidence? Yet the state of affairs that James describes in this passage is still so different from the reality of the group that he was speaking to that now he doubles down on his admonition by saying, as it is, the situation the way it is, you boast in your arrogance. And not only do you keep doing it, it is evil. How many of us, post-COVID, have gone back to planning with total disregard of the fact that something outside of our control 
could change our plan at any moment. I'm guilty of that. J.B. Phillips translates this passage, this little piece, as it is, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. I like that. <laughs> it nails it. As it is, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning the future with such confidence. Wow. That one hits me. I admit, I'm a planner. And many times, I've prided myself on having a good plan. And here I go, arrogantly planning, as if I had all the time in the world, and as if I knew how things were actually going to go. And I do it over and over. James says, get real. It is actually evil to plan this way. It not only lacks the quality of being good, it is aggressively and viciously wicked. Wow. James now has clearly drawn the contrast between self-confident planning and God-confident planning. So how do you react when your plans are interrupted? Anger? Frustration? Out of control? What's your first reaction when the flight home gets canceled? The plan you made to pick up the kids is thwarted. You encounter the traffic jam. You get sick and you can't do what you had planned. I remember one year I pulled into Chicago trying to get back to Frankfurt and I watched the plane next door leave for Frankfurt as I was sitting on the plane that had just come from Seattle. And Bernice was pregnant and waiting for me to get back to Germany. I wasn't exactly happy, neither was she. So how do we react when our plans are interrupted? How we react to the change in our plans we confidently made is a gauge of what we think of God's sovereignty versus ours, and how much we involved God in our planning in the first place. How we react to change in the plans we confidently made is a gauge of what we think of God's sovereignty versus ours and how much we involved God in our planning in the first place. James is encouraging us to train ourselves to always include God in our plans from the beginning, acknowledging his sovereignty over all things and trusting that his ways are the best when the changes come. Proverbs 16.9 is pretty clear. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Please note that James is not advocating a fatalistic approach here and suggesting we make no plans at all. Planning is very biblical. The Bible is full of examples of planning. We don't have enough time to go through it here, but the book of Nehemiah describes a man who knew how to do God-confident planning. He's also not advocating that we just end every plan with the phrase, if God wills, to cover our butts. In Islam, the words inshallah, if God wills, is an Arabic interjection. It's actually required by the Quran any time you talk about the future, uttered after statements which reference the future. It's used religiously by requirement and may or may not reflect the actual heart condition. James is instead advocating a significant heart attitude shift which puts God in his proper place. So what does God-confident planning look like? 
Self-confident, on the first, on the left there, is I will. I will do this. Self-confident planning gives no thought about what God wants. It's prideful. It's arrogant. It doesn't like to take advice. It's inflexible. And it's upset at the slightest deviation. If God wills planning, is God confident? It seeks God's will. It takes time to look, what do you want me to do, God, in this situation? It's humble. It recognizes our place. It's the posture of a learner, seeking advice, earnestly listening to advice. It's flexible, and it's wondering. I'll talk about that a little more in detail. Our posture as believers, when our plans are interrupted, and we know they will be, how many people think our plans won't be interrupted? Of course they will be. But our posture as believers, when our plans are interrupted, should be a posture of wonder and submission instead of anger and frustration. If we truly believe that God is sovereign and omniscient, do we really think that God was surprised by this turn of events that didn't go to our plan? No. We were on his plan all along. So when we're faced with a divine interruption from our perspective, take time to wonder. What does God want me to learn or do because of this change? Pray and submit what you had hoped and planned for back to him for adjustment and receive peace as you follow his lead. And now we come to the summative statement of this set of verses. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now James has made his points. He's made his points in the previous chapters as well. This seems to be directly connected to this statement about business and going to the next place. But it could also be applied um, to other things. James is effectively saying to these believers, now you know, now that you know what you should do, if you fail to do it, it is sin. So I used to lead a youth group, and in youth group I used to say to my middle and high schoolers, the Bible contains very dangerous information. The more you study and learn what it says, the more you're accountable for it. James here is describing our sins of omission. We are used to thinking about those things we have done intentionally against God's will. He's now turning the spotlight on the things we have failed to do. This is bad news. It's bad news. We are bigger sinners than we thought. If you know what is right and refuse to do it, that too is sin. This theme isn't a new one. Got Jesus' parable about failing to use money entrusted to a man in Luke 19. The people admonished for not taking care of the outcasts of society in Matthew 25. They're all condemned for what they failed to do, not for what they did. So, what have we learned? Recognize our true position with humility. Begin our planning with God in mind. 
allow God to adjust your plan. Realize that what you consider success is not necessarily the same as God's will. I'm going to say that again. Recognize that what you think, what you consider success, is not necessarily the same as God's will. Perhaps this morning you've seen through God's word that the way you need to plant needs to change. You, like I, have fallen often into the trap of prideful planning with secondary reference to God. But thank God for His grace. There is good news. And as we repent of this planning, this godless planning without God, and remember the things that we have left undone, there is grace through what Jesus has done for us to try to get it right. As we move towards our time of communion where we confess our sins and we're reminded of his grace, I want to share a prayer with you. Early in my relationship with my wife, Bernice, I attended an Episcopal church. I joke that I attended for a year to get her out of there, uh, which actually worked. She went with me to the Presbyterian church. Um, but the Episcopal Church and many other churches use a book to guide their service, and it's called the Book of Common Prayer. It's also found in other liturgical churches, uh, and it's been there for a very long time. But one of the prayers, which still reverberates in my brain uh, from over 40 years ago, is this prayer, which I'd like to pray with you now. So let's pray this together. I'll start us off. Speak this out. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O oh Lord, have mercy on us. We're now coming to the table which Jesus set for us as a reminder of his sacrifice on our behalf that pays for these sins done and undone. His continued pursuit of us with mercy and assurance of eternal life with him. His sacrifice is symbolized by this bread and the wine before you. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he died for your sin and mine, he broke bread and he said to his followers, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, and do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you come for communion today, you are declaring that Jesus is Lord of your life, that he is Lord of your plans. As you eat the bread and drink the wine or juice, humble yourself again, repent of any known sin, and commit to following him with an undivided mind.
The elements are here up front. Please come alone. Sometimes it's good to come alone because things you need to work out with God. And other times you might want to come into a group of family or friends. Take the bread, dip it in the wine, take it to your seat or somewhere else in the room and reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, uh, for the thousands of plans that you have rearranged. And Lord, may we learn to plan with you in mind first. May we receive communion today knowing that you have paid uh, for our sins, that we can come to you, we can repent, we can turn away from the way we've done things before, and you give us grace to start again. So Lord, would you help us to place our plans firmly into your hands and trust you for the outcome. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming today. Very glad you're here.